Hey, welcome back to Stop Killing Deals and this highlight reel on the topic of connecting with others. This show, the Stop Killing Deals webinar and podcast series, was built around exploring four main areas that affect sales performance. That is you connecting with others, systems and structure, and vision and direction. On this particular highlight reel, we will be focusing on empathy, trust, and coaching. We're going to have some highlights from my interviews with Kirk Cannell, the hostage negotiator, Charles Green, who you may know from the trusted advisor. That said, let's jump right into it. Next up is Kirk Cannell. Kirk has been involved in more than 250 hostage situations. He shared with me a story about why he got into this career in the first place. That was when he was a police officer, his squad was outside a building at a hostage situation when negotiators showed up. And they solved the entire conflict without any need of violence. They did not even have guns. He then understood the power of words and decided to become a hostage negotiator himself. And as such, one of the main takeaways that he shared was the importance of how to quickly build trust and to never lie. Let's listen to some of Kirk's wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. So surprisingly, um, we, we kept a, a record every year of the number of calls that we attended and yep. the number of successful resolutions. And over the period of 20 years, the success rate was 99.9%. You know, in terms of the volume of calls, there, there perhaps would be around 200 calls per year. The reality for that is almost everyone was successful. Well, yes, of course. I mean, the reality is that hostage negotiators would arrive at the scene. And on almost every occasion, the balance of power was with the other person. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Um, in a hostage taking, the person with the knife or the gun would have all of the power and the police would have no power. Yeah. So we would have to move the balance of power gradually over a period of time to the team to gain that person's trust. And of course, we learned over time when we reviewed our successes was that there was a repeatable process for one, building trust and two, changing the mindset of that other person. And building trust, there are some, of course, key ingredients in building mm -hmm. trust. Yeah. The first is really being authentic because we select hostage negotiators who go through a rigorous process and intense training for a considerable period of time. Yeah. And they have to be genuine. They have to care about the people and be able to demonstrate that they care about the people. So that's probably the first key ingredient is that being able to articulate and demonstrate and authenticity about you care about the let's call it a customer but for us it's never a customer it's a person right we would never refer to them as prospects or customers they're just people and we really find out their name we bring a warm exchange and for me the heart of trust is really about certainty and repeat experience to okay. ingredients it's about bringing certainty to an equation where there is massive uncertainty Okay. And, you know, you can build trust the more you repeat that same experience with that person. So you know that if you have a, a good experience with one of your friends, the more often you do it, the more you trust that person with that type of event. Yeah. 
So, so hostage negotiators will do things like not approach the person to cause them concern, or if they do approach, they'll approach slowly and perhaps bring them food or water. And we'll do that repeatedly to show that we're not trying to trick them. Mm-hmm. So really to, to put their suspicion at ease. And so if people don't really trust you, they will be suspicious of you. So the first thing we have to do is eliminate suspicion. Right. The second thing really for that is about telling them the truth. So if they suspect you're not telling them the truth, of course, they will perceive that you're telling lies. So in the yeah. hostage negotiation world, we teach the team never to tell a lie. And even when you're asked the most difficult conversation to difficult question, we train them to deal with that in the most sensitive way, because most of us as human beings find the easiest way to get out of a difficult situation is just to tell a white lie and hopefully uh-huh. move on. But but we recognize that the other side, the person, can hear it, they can smell it, they can taste it, they can yeah. feel it. And regardless of how good you think you are, you know, you're never really authentic. And probably the last thing is about transparency. And again, it's being transparent or at least being open about the level of transparency you can bring. Because if people perceive you not to be transparent, then they will perceive you have a fraudulent intent. Okay, they'll be even more suspicious of your motives. So we teach people about trust. We teach them about the truth. We teach them about transparency and also repeat shared experiences and being honest with people and being authentic. And when you combine all of those elements together, hostage negotiators build trust on the edge of a bridge at the side of a building really quickly. You can almost get to know someone and have a connection with them in a short period of time, in maybe 30, 40 minutes, one hour. So a person who's contemplating losing their life with massive uncertainty at that point in time, Mm -hmm. then we bring certainty and trust to them and of course human beings yeah we are designed to want to trust people so we tap into that feeling people want to trust you and really right. all you can do is, is damage that so we teach them to to be a help and not a hindrance to that equation all you can all you can do is be yourself and you can find things in common with people even when they are they are doing some some bad things so typically we would try to display some empathy and empathy is is not about, you know, I've heard that described as walking in the shoes of other people and feeling their feelings. Empathy for me is about recognizing and articulating the emotions and context of yeah. the situation that you see. So we would say out loud things like you seem very angry as a consequence of an event that has happened to you. Uh-huh. And usually the person will acknowledge that you have seen something going on with them. And it's right. that moment in time when you connect with someone, when there's a mutual recognition of something real, well, that's when you build trust. And and we call that an engrossed transformational moment, an engrossed transformational conversation when you know that moment in time, perhaps in your own life, where you meet someone and there's just, yeah, he just gets me or she just gets me. And you yeah. find it hard to explain what happened. It's uh-huh. usually the consequences of a recognition and a mutual understanding, and you personally will just feel heard and understood. So we try and make people feel heard and understood. And yeah, there's no there's no trick to that because the minute you start to trick someone, then 
you will lose trust really quickly in, in the world of hostage negotiation. If we do that, we will harm our relationship and we cannot afford to do that. You can be authentic, you can be real and you have to build trust, but that trust has to be real because for salespeople, you know, once the sale is done, your objective cannot be to harm the person or or not care about the outcome. Hopefully it's about not. making sure. Yeah, well, listen, I, I, I have I have spoken to some sales staff previously, and we asked the question. Yeah. How many of you have told a lie to get the deal done? And almost everyone says, "Yeah, we've done that." And say, "Well, that will never bring you repeat business. Mm -hmm. you know, it will harm your organization." And so, for me, the world of hostage negotiation can teach something to sales staff is that, well, especially for the organizations, repeat yeah. business comes from sustainable personal relationships. Mm -hmm. Sustainable personal relationships is sustainable growth. That means repeat business. That means profits. So that short-term gain, if you like, that frontline sales staff have learned can sometimes be beneficial, usually does more harm than good. And so they learn that even though it may take longer or it's a bit of a tougher journey, it's usually better for the overall organization. Right. That I'm teaching in the corporate world now is about saying you can you can be authentic, you can be real, and you have to build trust. But that trust has to be real because for salespeople, you know, once the sale is done, your objective cannot be to harm the person or or not care about the outcome. Hopefully it's about not. making sure Yeah, well, listen, I I, I have I have spoken to some sales staff previously and we asked the question, Yeah, how many of you have told a lie to get the deal done? And almost everyone says, yeah, we've done that. And say, well, that will never bring you repeat business. Mm -hmm. you know, it will harm your organization. And so for me, the world of hostage negotiation can teach something to sales staff is that, well, especially for the organizations, repeat yeah. business comes from sustainable personal relationships. Mm -hmm. Sustainable personal relationships is sustainable growth. That means repeat business. That means profits. So that short-term gain, if you like, that frontline sales staff have learned can sometimes be beneficial, usually does more harm than good. And so they learn that even though it may take longer or it's a bit of a tougher journey, it's usually better for the overall organization. Right. The most obvious one is that people with, with good intentions use the phrase, ah, yeah, I understand completely. You know that that phrase, and okay. usually that backfires um, when the person demonstrates, you can't possibly understand my situation. And yeah. almost what, what you're doing there accidentally is diminishing their story. And of course, they're going to react negatively right. to that. And of course, probably the most obvious mistake is to, is to tell someone who is, who is angry or frustrated to calm down. Because never in the history of calm down has calm down ever worked. And we recognize that what you're actually doing is rather than display empathy to that situation, you can either display apathy or antipathy, where you almost reject their need to express an emotion. And of course, when you tell someone their emotions are not valid, they're not going to react well. So yeah, calm down is probably the most obvious mistake that people make when they're confronted by an outpouring of emotion. Yeah, listen, in, in terms of that, well, there, I would I would say we would probably stay away from a menu of, of go-to phrases. And the yeah. reason I would I would tell people to stay away from that is because 
if it's over rehearsed or or practiced, then it's it lacks authenticity. Yeah. But what we do is we ask them to rehearse those type of engagements where mm -hmm. eventually things just flow naturally from you. So right. most people would think that hostage negotiators like me this morning can talk forever. But in actual fact, the skill is to is to listen to the other right. side. So we really get them to practice to really hear what's being said and not to jump to conclusions. You know, for right. me, the one of the one of the other mistakes that people make is to have too much faith in what they would call their instincts without validating some of the things that come out in dialogue. Mm -hmm. So we would ask them to probe the dialogue and, and become more sure of their facts rather than making quick assumptions. An emotion I would maybe hear or see would be, you know, someone at the edge of a bridge or someone on the edge of a building yeah. are have a very, you know, angry face. And we would yeah. say, well, you're clearly angry about something. Uh -huh. And the person would become even more angry because you're not connecting with them. Right. So we learned to, you know, have a guess at that emotion that you see without being accusatory or directive or assuming that you have it correct. Uh -huh. And we would prefix that guess, if you like, with a simple phrase like, it sounds to me like, it sounds as if, I feel as if you're angry so that you're not accusatory right. of telling the person that they're angry. And when you do that, you say, I get the sense that you're very angry today. Then the response that you get from the person is, no, I'm not angry, but I'm frustrated. And I'm frustrated because of A, B, and C. Uh -huh. So you can see there by, by guessing what's a reasonable guess, you yeah. could make an assumption. But actually, if you just probe a bit further and have the time to listen and, and confirm with the person, then they'll usually put you on the right lines and without assuming the person's anger, all of a sudden you'll have a whole story about why they're frustrated. Because visually, to most people, anger and frustration, those emotions, they look very similar. Of course, there is subtle nuance and, and difference in terms of the facial expressions, but to, to the general layperson, they look identical. Without adding pressure to the situation, without adding pressure to yourself to say, okay, we're working on a helicopter, we'll have it here in maybe 30 minutes because you suspect the SWAT team will force the door down in 20 minutes. That's a Hollywood movie scene, really, right? So the, the reality is what you do is just ask the question, you know, because if someone's asking for a, a, helico a helicopter, um, they're basically trying to satisfy a need, and we have to understand what that need is. Yep. So we could assume that need is to escape, but in actual fact, it's obviously just to get out of that situation. So what we could do is to say, are there other ways to achieve that same objective? Right. And that would be, you know, something simple like, okay, so you're caught in a bank robbery. You probably did not intend for things to go wrong right now. Of course, you appreciate you, you cannot escape um, completely from this situation, but you can help the situation and not make it any worse. So all of a sudden, you're starting to offer solutions which point towards the same basic need as to yeah. not end up in jail for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So there's always other ways to achieve that need, that goal. So when people make a demand, really it's an expression of a need. And we just have to understand what's behind that demand rather than reacting to the demand, which is a superficial way to have a conversation.
Yeah. What happens there when we're involved in the world of hostage negotiation is that we learn to basically understand people. Okay. We always try and understand their perspective, which is a phrase that we use over and over again, understand the perspective of mm -hmm. other people. And when I'm talking about this, I I quote a famous Scottish poet, and you'll okay. forgive me for, for getting a Scottish poet in this, and it's Robbie Burns, a famous <laughs> poet. Yeah. And in one of his poems, To a Louse, he says a phrase, and don't worry, I'll translate it into English as soon as I'm <laughs> finished. He says, yeah. well, what's some power the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us? And really what that means, translated um, for English, is, oh, how powerful would it be to be able to see ourselves the way other people see us? Right. Now, that's really impactive because it's not about the way you see yourself in a mirror with your rose-tinted glasses. Uh -huh. It's how do other people actually see you. Yeah. So we teach hostage negotiators to be brutal in terms of their assessment of themselves mm -hmm. and of other people. So we teach them to listen for all of the clues that help you figure out people. And once you figure people out, the solution is normally staring you straight in the face rather than making assumptions that in their life, they have a series of, of upsets or, or things that have gone wrong. Yeah. But deep down, they have a drive, they have mm -hmm. a motivation and a desire to perhaps make their family proud. But what the behavior that exhibits that moment in time is shame and despair. But yeah. we know that inside, behind that veneer, that surface, there is a person who really wants to work hard, really wants to look after their family, and the shame is making them want to perhaps end their life because they cannot face the mountain of debt or loss of their right. job or something we say. But, but inside there is a loving, caring, hardworking man. And so let's, let's talk to that person. Let's talk to the person who is a survivor and a fighter for their family. Right. And we, we change that shame into pride. You know, we, we, right. it's the opposite. So we basically reflect back to them who they are and who they want to be. And that's how we can sell hope to people because we don't just act on the superficial behaviors. Right. We dig a bit deeper to, to what's going on behind the scenes. In terms of listening, I think one of the common mistakes that people make is that they either listen to respond or they're listening with another agenda. They're not really listening to understand right. what's being said. You don't listen to understand the other person because as soon as you think of what your next question is going to be, you're back on your own agenda. Exactly. So we teach people to get off of your agenda, get on their agenda, and only respond to perhaps the last thing that you've heard. And mm -hmm. so in terms of that, we teach people to listen for clues, which will help unpick what drives the person's behavior. And we, we have a phrase that we say, you know, people are listening for information. Knowledge is not power. Okay, we reiterate, knowledge right. is not power. It's the application of knowledge which gives you power. So yeah. it's what you do with that information. So we train them to listen for dialogue, but turn that information into intelligence. Let's right. do something with the information. We teach people not to manipulate, but to influence. And the difference is manipulation is about getting your way but influence is about provoking change with a good intention. On the topic of trust, I had the pleasure to interview Charles Green, the author of The Trusted Advisor, in which Charles shares ideas, concepts, and practical advice on how to build trust in commercial relationships. In it, he outlines 
what's called the trust equation, which is such a brilliant equation, if you ask me. And it says that we, if we add credibility, reliability, and intimacy and divide that by the perceived level of self-orientation, that is the level of trust you will be creating. And for anyone in sales, this is very important to remember because trust is essential to gain any kind of progress with another human being in a commercial setting. And people can smell self-interest from a mile away. Let's listen to some highlights from the interview with Charles. There's a trustor and a trustee. The trustor is the person who takes a risk on trusting the other person. The trustee is the person who is either trustworthy or not. And if those two connect, then the level of trust as a result goes up. And uh, another point is you have to be able to change roles. You can't just be trustworthy. Occasionally, right. you have to trust also. Otherwise, the other person will say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm always the one taking the risk here. That's not fair. So I don't trust you after all. The trustor and the trustee. The yeah. way to think about the trustee is the trustworthiness. And in, in my book, The Trusted Advisor, 20 years ago, we presented this idea of the trust equation to break it down and to say there are mm -hmm. four components of trustworthiness that we can think of intellectually. And those are uh, the equation is C plus R plus I over S credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self orientation. Uh, credibility is basically expertise and competence. Yeah. Uh, reliability is repeatable, dependable, um, you know, around actions. Mm -hmm. Intimacy is very different. That's sort of, do I feel safe and secure sharing information with you? Those right. three are positive virtues, if you will. Higher numbers, uh, increased trustworthiness. In the denominator, which goes the other way, self-orientation, like high self-orientation is bad. That reduces trustworthiness. Right. And self-orientation is either pure selfishness, uh -huh. greed, which is not that hard to spot and not that much of an issue in business. The much more common one is neurotic self-obsession, always worrying about what's going on in our head. You know, am I going to yeah. get failed? Do they like me? How come she's looking at me? How come nobody's looking at me? Yeah. A thousand and one things like the hamster on the wheel that keep mm -hmm. us separated from the person in front of us. Uh, unfortunately, um, that definition of sales has built into it right at the level of objectives an oppositional relationship between the seller and, and the customer or the client. Yeah. And uh, we mentioned Andy Paul. Andy was telling me just the other day, all kinds of research indicates that by and large, for the most part, most customers don't trust most sellers. Mm. And paradoxically, if you were to approach the sales relationship from that perspective, detach it from the outcome, the outcome actually increases. You get better. You get more sales by behaving yeah. in a totally client-focused kind of a manner. How would I actually focus on helping the customer? Well, I would never tell lies. I would make sure that, that mm -hmm. I am doing all things in their best interest, not mine. I would be open, transparent. I would be willing to take risks. I would be dependable. I'd be conscious yeah. of the track record that I'm developing. So all four components of the trust equation get touched yeah. if you flip your objectives that way. Well, the quick answer is no, you can't. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there's some ways in which you can help it. But fundamentally, I believe, and I'm, I'm not the only one, but, but um, it's a small group. You can't systematize it because it is a human relationship. Go back to the, you know, the definition of, uh, of, of trust here. It's, it's a form of relationship between two yeah. human beings. 
And anything that is systematized and turned into a process and measured carefully by analytics and consciously defined behaviors is going to feel terribly inauthentic. One of the biggest management myths out there, I'll put a point of view out here, yeah, sure. the phrase, if you can't me measure it, you can't manage it. That's ridiculous. Of course, there are a thousand ways in which you could manage without measurements. Measurement is overrated. I think it's come about, and this isn't just sales. This is management in general. Yeah, yeah. Now the, the big two mantras in management overall are, are measurements and processes. Yep. And uh, you've seen this, I'm sure. All the email that I get, totally uninvited. People are using all these great analytical tools out there to do a great job of targeting, and they forget they don't do. A, they do a terrible job at customizing. So you get these yeah. form letters advertising how to come up with better form letters <laughs> to send out to people, and you know, you customize your your introductory paragraph. Well, it's obvious when it's done that way. Yeah. And and then they always end by saying, "Would you click on my calendar here to schedule a phone call?" Hell no. That's exactly <laughs> who I do not want to have a phone call with. That is not what yeah. you lead with. Right. And I'll tell you what the acid test. Uh, the acid test of if you're doing it right is, would you be willing to recommend a competitor if that were better for the, the customer? If I can share a quick vignette. Um, mm -hmm. Years ago, I, I remember uh, I worked for a consulting firm. The head of our financial services practice was, was uh, acquaintances with the head of the financial services practice at McKinsey. They knew each other professionally. Mm -hmm. And one day, our guy, his name was Bill, got a phone call from the, uh, the, the head at McKinsey of the financial services practice. And he said to Howard, uh, to Bill, um, listen, I have, a, I have a problem. We have a very important New York City major center bank. We started a project with them and suddenly everything went wrong. You know, personality conflicts, misunderstanding. Yeah. So we stopped, restarted. And again, unfortunately, some problems have emerged and we're going to have to shut that down. We cannot afford to have three losses in a row. Therefore, I'm calling you, Bill, my friend, to ask whether you would go into our client and do this very important piece of work. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill had never heard anything like that. Of course, he said, sure, you know, they happen to help you out. And he went in and they did the work. And afterwards, he went to the client and said, listen, now you've seen our kind of people and how good we are, what kind of work we did. Could we talk about some more? And the client said, Bill, you guys were great. I know you came in under pressure and you did a wonderful job. Your people are great. But I got to tell you, we would never leave McKinsey because they were big enough to bring you in. And there you go. I mean, exactly. What see And there's a lot of paradoxes in trust. And this is a great one. What would seem like a suicidal gesture, you know, opening the door and bring in uh, a competitor turns out to be received as the greatest sign of client devotion that you can imagine. The uh, resistance that salespeople have to saying, I don't know. Uh -huh. they, they just hate those words. But when yeah. you think about it, it's about the most trust creating thing you can say. I don't know. Who's going to doubt you when you say that? Yeah. Nobody. Which means it's highly credibility enhancing. And yet people follow over and say, well, I don't know exactly. We have a little bit of that. I can get that for you, blah, 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 blah. That's not the point. The point is, are you willing to tell the truth? Mm -hmm. or not. He said, we are long-term selfish, meaning, yeah, we're in it to make money, you know, but in the long way, long run, the best right. way to do that is for our interests and our clients' interests to coincide. It may not coincide at every point along the way, but yeah. in the long run, if we do focus on that client, we will also end up much more wealthy uh -huh. and to lose track of the fact that the best short-term results do not come about by slavishly following quarterly objectives. They come about 
by continually behaving according to long-term values and principles. That's what impresses clients. And that shows up not just in the long-term, but in the short-term. It doesn't take long for clients to say, wow, I really trust these people. The next job I have, which may be in a month or three months, I'm going to go with them. One of the easiest ways to create trust is make a lot of promises and keep them. They yes. don't have to be big promises. Bring water, little stuff. You right. quickly develop a track record. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I guess I would say two things. Number one, the, the relationship, like any interpersonal relationship, is subject to the same rules around trust. So role modeling the right behavior is, is critical. Mm. Uh, that's true, I think, for any managerial relationship, but especially trust, because hypocrisy becomes a real issue if you don't do what you're suggesting other people do. So one, it's role modeling. Yep. And the other one I mentioned before, in, in, the, in that trust equation, the most powerful component turns out to be intimacy. Well, in so many businesses, the ones that I work with, like professional services and B2B mm -hmm. sales, yeah. You attract people who are technicians, who are default, you know, over-schooled yeah. on the rational side of things. They're they're numerate, uh, but they're emotionally illiterate. Right. And um, so I think that, you know, you, you have to show salespeople how to do this trust thing. And you have to do it with them. And you have to make sure that they see you doing it with other people. True. You know, the phrase, nobody got fired for hiring IBM. And you're sure, but but I think it's more useful to look at that relationship in a time basis than an either or basis. So, for example, I've found <clears throat> it's generally best to lead with 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 the rational components. Lead with your credentials, lead with your reputation, lead with your your degrees and your white papers and your process and your website. Mm -hmm. Then you get a meeting, and once you're in the meeting, throw the rest away. It's like right. getting uh, the the purpose of a resume is to get you a job interview. Once you've gotten the interview, throw the resume away. That's done. Don't keep repeating it. At that point, whether you're a big company market leader or not, is when you need to start forming those relationships. So I think having the reputation will get you in the door, but it won't get you to sale no matter what your market position is. People are still not going to commit you know, a half a million dollars uh, to somebody that they think, yeah, I don't know about this guy. There is this bias these days I find in... Um, uh, you know, let's get a thousand leads and send out something to all of them. You're far yeah. better off with a hundred leads or 10 and really diving deeply and establishing relationships. That is a more effective form of selling, not to mm -hmm. mention which you don't drag your name through the, you know, the mindless digital um, bulletin board approach to marketing with 990 other firms. I have two, two thoughts on risk. One from the, the, um, you know, most, most, uh, the, the most effective and fastest way to take a risk is to, um, is to go through the emotional side in particular intimacy. Okay. Uh, I forget, I think it was back in the Roosevelt administration. One of his, uh, uh, deputies had uh, became famous for saying the fastest way to make a man trustworthy is to trust him. Right. In other words, you take the risk and trust the other person, and they naturally reciprocate. Robert Cialdini writes very clearly about yeah. uh, the reciprocity, mm -hmm. and it absolutely yeah. works with trust. So that's one. Figure out a way to take the risk. And, and, yeah. and the, the usual one is for you to take some emotional risk about yourself, share something about yourself, uh, have the courage to put yourself out there, okay. which operate purely on the cognitive level. And it says when you're approaching a new potential client, 
instead of attaching the your your best white paper, which is bulletproof and heavily researched and so forth, yeah. but there's no risk in that. It's like here's our latest and greatest white paper. Well, you know, maybe I'll be interested in it, maybe not. What would be much more interesting is if you were to go one level deeper and say to this company, you know, do a little bit of research and say, listen, I'm not sure about this. We haven't researched it in great depth, but we have taken a look at a few things here. And, you know, I could be wrong, but it seems to me possible that this situation is the case for you. Is that true? Hmm. There's only two answers to that, and they're both good. The first one is when the client says, yeah, wow, it's a huge issue for us. Anything you have, we'd love to talk about. The other one's actually even better. That's when they say, aha, everybody thinks that's the issue, but it's not. It's really (laughs) In which case you say, oh, my God, the minute you said that, I realized how right you are. Tell me about that. You know, I remember years ago, uh, Bill Bain, the head of the founder and original head of Bain and Company Consulting, uh, they had a fascinating approach to new client development, uh, total opposite of what's going on today. They would research a firm for several weeks and he would then call up the CEO Mm -hmm. and say, listen. We have looked at your business. We've identified 42 different projects, which in aggregate would raise your stock price by 80%, you know, and, and your bottom line by 40%, and your capitalization would double, you know, something like that. Uh-huh. We don't have enough people and enough time, and you probably don't have enough money to do all of those 42. So what I'd like to do is schedule a full day meeting in your boardroom, and let's narrow it down to 20 projects that we can do for you. What do you say? Well, that had, I mean, that's pretty gutsy, right? That's setting the bar pretty high. Well, I don't know, biggest, uh, two or three things. Number one, overemphasizing the rational components of trust, overly emphasizing the credibility, the credentials, the competence, the reliability, the track record, the references, and underemphasizing the emotional aspect of trust. So that would certainly be one. Mm -hmm. Related to that, um, again, most of the people that I work with, and most people in business, um, the, the biggest single cause of, of um, missed opportunities in trust is our urge to solve problems as fast as possible. The, uh, okay. the, the tendency to jump ahead to problem solving before yes. you have gone through the natural human process of seeking to understand the other person. Imagine poor Garrett at three weeks old suddenly has some kind of physical problem and he's colicky and he's got a temperature and he's crying all the time. Imagine you're my daughter, a first time mother. You're freaking out. You know, you call up the pediatrician. Well, imagine you go into the pediatrician's office and the pediatrician says, oh, yeah, we see this all the time. Take these two pills, rub this on the kid. Call me next week. You know, check in. Bye. No, like they usually do, though. <laughs> well, too, too many. Most pediatricians are a little better than that. Yeah, no, yeah, pediatricians might. What, what they should do, of course, is, oh, my gosh, that's got to be terrible. Tell me what happens. What happens when you do this? Ooh, how long has this been going on? The reason is people come to you because of credentials. The reason my daughter would go to a pediatrician is because she selected somebody she thinks is the best qualified. Yeah. That does not mean that she's automatically going to take their advice. Mm-hmm. Not until that pediatrician makes her feel that she's unique, that he has listened to and understood her issues. And we're right back to the hostage thing. You have to hone yeah. in on that person, make sure that mm-hmm. they feel understood. Yep. People don't know that you empathize until and unless you struggle to find out ways to show that you empathize. And now I want to know, was this helpful to you? Did you like the topics? Did you learn anything new? Did you think the topics were valuable in themselves? How about the interview format? Did you appreciate how we first 
went outside of the sales space and then talked to a sales expert. I really want to know how you like this format and the, the topics. Uh, please reach out to me via LinkedIn or send me an email, drop me a note on Twitter, whatever you like best, and let me know what you think. Thank you. See you soon.